We're going to continue in our sequential exposition of the book of Acts. Before we do that, let's turn to our Lord in prayer. Faithful Father, we here this morning have been reminded to thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you for those who make great sacrifices in not only the risk of their own lives, but a daily sacrifice to themselves and their families to be a part of the armed forces. Lord, we pray for other parts of the world where people are uh, fighting to have the same uh, measure of freedom that we enjoy. We pray for those in, in Ukraine and other places that are dealing with that at this time. Lord, we are reminded to thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in Christ, to be free from the bondage of sin and self, and to be restored to you, God, to be your children, to be your servants, to be your soldiers. And we pray also this morning that we will be reminded that because of, because of who we are in Christ, we are not only set apart, but we are sent. Help us to learn from your word again more about proclaiming our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So we are in Acts chapter 3, and if you were with us last week, we emphasized there the, the healing of the man who was lame from birth, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus continues to work through his apostles, Peter and John healed this man who had been a cripple from his mother's womb, and he was immediately healed, immediately not only good at walking, but he was leaping and praising God. And of course, this gathered a lot of attention. And so that's where we pick up in verse 11. Read with me in Acts 3, beginning in verse 11. While he, the man who was healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom you have received until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The first question our text gives us an answer to is, what do we do when serving Jesus draws attention? Verses 11 and 12. In this case, it's positive attention. People are, quote, utterly astounded, and they gather to them at Solomon's portico. I have another picture for you this week of the temple, Herod's temple. The picture you saw last week was just that central part of the temple proper where you begin to see the, the, the women's court. Um, and so that front gate that to you looks really tiny, uh, the front gate between the Gentile court, that's the really huge one, and the next one, that would have been the gate beautiful we talked about last week where this man was healed. And then inside the, the overall court of the Gentiles, you can see all of these pillars with, where there's a covered section. Well, on the side that is in fact toward us, which is the east side, underneath there, that's the side that they called Solomon's portico. So that's where Peter, the people all are coming to Peter near here and speaking to him. That other covered section over there is called the royal porch, but Solomon's porch would have been under this pillared side that we really can't see. It's on the other side of the wall. And now everybody's coming to them. But what does Peter do when all of this attention is drawn to them? When their faithful service gathers positive attention for him, what does he do? He says, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as if by our own power or our own piety, our own goodness in following the law of God has made this man walk. What does he do instead? Peter is already redirecting attention from himself to the Lord Jesus. What should we do when attention is drawn to us in our faithful service? We exalt Christ. We redirect the attention from ourselves to Jesus. We'll see in chapter 4 that this exact same event draws also for them negative attention. What do we do when our, our faithfulness to the Lord draws negative attention? We do the exact same thing. We exalt Christ. We still deflect attention from ourselves to Jesus. What do we do then when serving draws attention, positive or negative? We say, Jesus taught. We say, the Bible says, we exalt Christ. So we've all already seen something to learn from Peter and John's example, but 
the bulk of, of our passage today for us to focus on comes in verses 13 to 26. So what can we learn from listening to Peter proclaim Christ? Where we're headed is that we're going to uh, talk about how what, as Peter's proclaiming Christ, we're going to see that we can connect with and correct our listeners' understanding of God and his purposes from Scripture. Then we, will, we also need to do as Peter does and bring clarity to our guilt, our culpability before God. We focus attention on who Jesus is and what God has done through, through him. And those, those three parts will take us a little bit longer. And then because all of these things overlap, we'll more quickly talk about the fact that this testifying to Christ is a personal witness for us, just as it was for them. We call people to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. We warn people of judgment and we invite them to the blessings of grace. So in proclaiming Jesus as Lord, we connect with what their understanding is of God and what they already know of the scriptures, but then we also correct that understanding. The first thing Peter does is acknowledge the one true God and the unique relationship that the Jews, his audience, verse 13, that they have to God in his gracious plan, revealed in in the former covenants, dating all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the patriarchs, or the ones that the Jews would call the fathers, and they represent God's covenant uniquely with the Hebrew people, not because of anything in and of the Jews or the Israelites, but by his own good pleasure to display his glory on the earth. So too, it is from this very identity as Jews that Peter must correct their understanding. And that comprises the overall thrust of the whole message. I'm going to show you how the way that this message starts is the same way that it finishes. The whole sermon is held together by this thread. Peter's message opens and closes with a right understanding of God overall in a way that he has catered that to their knowledge and experience of of his particular audience. And then he speaks of, of their understanding of Jesus in particular, saying, why does this matter to you, to his audience? Again, see verse 13, where he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And then look at verses 25 and 26. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he's drawing a connection to how God is fulfilling that through Jesus Christ. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So more specifically, Peter must correct their understanding of God's plan for the Messiah as is revealed in the scriptures. It's almost like he's saying to them, you must think you're still waiting for God's promised Messiah, but you just killed the Christ. However, that suffering servant was in God's plan, and he, God, has raised this Jesus and exalted him on high. Calling Jesus God's servant 
He does this at the beginning and the end, as you just saw, comes into focus when we understand what Peter's argument is. It is indeed, this word pice in Greek is an unusual New Testament term for Jesus. Peter uses it here, and the believers use it again in their prayer in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 30. So it's unusual in the New Testament, but it's not an unusual word in the Old Testament for Messiah. When we read the the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Old Testament, we frequently see this word in the Old Testament. So the only other New Testament reference is in Matthew chapter 12, but there it's quoting from Isaiah to reference Jesus. So here's a a summary, though, of what the point is. What the Jews were overlooking was the necessity of the Christ to be the suffering servant who would die for sin but rise again in order to be vindicated as the Lord and Christ. They were overlooking that this same servant was then also uniquely empowered to do miracles unlike anything they had ever seen. And they were overlooking that this Jesus was indeed God's servant to bring the promised hope to the Gentiles also. It's not just this term servant, though, and the overall thrust of the message that offers this needed correction of their understanding. Peter will also focus attention more explicitly on the testimony of Old Testament prophecy. So you notice here that a lot of the times when we do our exposition of the text, I'm just going in order with the verses. But this morning, I've sort of broken them out into themes for you to think about as you are proclaiming Christ or main points. And so I'm going to move ahead and we'll come back to some of these verses, but I'm going to move ahead to show you how Peter it continues to talk about these things. So in verse 18, Peter says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then in verses 22 and 23, drive home the point that Jesus is the prophet foretold by Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. It's made abundantly clear in the New Testament gospels that Jesus is indeed a prophet, but much more than a prophet. And you remember the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, that Jesus is certainly at least as much or more of a prophet than Moses, but he's even more than that. He is the son. There too is the warning in the verses that we read for those who reject this prophet, especially those who are of the household of Israel. Peter will continue in verse 24 that all the prophets from Samuel onward have foretold these days. Do you remember chapter 2? What days? The days now ushered in by the Christ. These are, quote, the last days, as Peter called them when he was quoting the prophet Joel. These are the days where, because of Christ, the Spirit is now poured out on all who believe, all who become the true sons and daughters of God. Miracles such as these that Peter is talking about, that they just, Peter and John just performed, these are proof, verse 16, that his name, by faith in his name, that is what has made this man strong, whom you see and know, the faith that is through Jesus 
has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. We'll come back to talk about that verse in a little bit. But what's the point to his audience about this evidence from Scripture? Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. But you're not there yet without repentance and faith. So we'll head back to that in just a moment. Peter does here in this section of the text what we must do in order to accurately proclaim Christ. He connects with their understanding and then he also corrects their understanding of God and his plan. He corrects their understanding of the person and the role of Jesus Christ in particular. And he does so from Scripture. In our situations, we undoubtedly need to listen well in order to understand what people think, what people know of God. And then we need to offer needed correction according to God's Word. When we proclaim the gospel, we really are only saying what the Bible says about God, about us, about Jesus. If Peter's audience dealt with a level of ignorance about the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures, Peter's audience, the Jews to whom the law was given, if they need a correction of their understanding of the scriptures, how much more do you think we deal with misunderstandings and confusions and misrepresentations of what the Bible teaches? How many of you have experienced that in your conversations with people just to try to find out what they think about God? And you discover they completely misunderstand the God of the Bible. If that's the God, if that God who is, who is so judgmental against sin, right? This is the kind of thing you hear people say. No, 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 you do not understand the God of the Bible. Let me help you understand the God of the Bible. You don't want him to be a God who is not perfect in his justice. Otherwise, he's not God. Let me help you understand this God as he presents himself in his word. We always bring people to see what God says about himself on his terms. So much confusion, so much misunderstanding, and you know yourself from your own experience when you were dead and blind in your sin, your own level of confusion and misunderstanding. Our, our listeners will have different misconceptions, but we must always be prepared to address those. Secondly, in proclaiming Christ as Lord, we also bring clarity to our culpability before God. The Jews were mostly clear about generally being sinners who needed atonement and forgiveness. Wouldn't they have understood that? They have the law. They have a Levitical system. They have a sacrificial system to regularly atone for sin. They know they need forgiveness. They know they are sinners. Because if they did not, God would crush them in his righteous wrath. They understand that. Some in your audience will not. Here Peter clarifies for his particular audience, he's calling them men of Israel, the way that they are also guilty, this is the emphasis for Peter then, 
They're guilty in the unjust killing of the Christ. In Peter's case, he intertwines their responsibility for their sin with their complicity in the death of Jesus because of rejecting him as Messiah and calling for his crucifixion. So this point about man's culpability for sin and the true identity and work of Jesus are woven together in Peter's public proclamation of the gospel on this day in Solomon's portico. Notice how Peter draws attention to the responsibility of his audience before God for what they have done. At the end of verse 13 again, God glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You delivered over and denied Jesus to Pilate even when Pilate had determined to release him. Denying that Jesus was holy and righteous, you instead asked for a murderer to be given to you, verse 14. And you killed the author of life. Yikes. Peter doesn't preach any soft-pedaled version of the gospel that tries to coax people in without stabbing them in the heart with the truth of their sin. Crushing them with the weight of God's holiness and wrath. That is the gospel. Your sin separates you from God and is destroying you and leads to your eternal destruction. Your sin is presently destroying you and it leads to your eternal destruction. God hates sin and his wrath is burning against it and you in sin. Your sin is so pervasive in your life and it is, it is so attached to your identity that you are powerless to do anything to make yourself right with God. You are at the mercy of a holy God. The reason a perfect Jesus, God the Son, died a horrible death was because of your sin and because of God's mercy. Such is the reality that must be declared in the true gospel. Finally, even in their ignorance, they are not innocent. Verse 17 almost feels to me like this is the second movement in Peter's sermon, beginning at verse 17, and he acknowledges that on some level, what they did was out of ignorance. Now, let's just think for a second, what are they ignorant of and what are they not ignorant of? We know that they weren't ignorant of the fact that Jesus was uniquely attested by God by mighty works and wonders and signs. That's what he said in Acts 2.22. They are not ignorant of the fact that Jesus was unique. Do you remember that as we studied through Luke's gospel, they had to try to make up other excuses for why Jesus might have the power and authority that he did? Oh, maybe he does these things by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus will say, that makes no sense. Satan is divided against himself. I'm casting out demons. Y'all are crazy. So they're not ignorant of that. The context, though, which we spoke of already, will go on to show that their ignorance was at this level. Their ignorance is at the level of not understanding and listening to the plain testimony of Scripture concerning the Christ. They didn't understand the scriptures. The reason Peter can be gracious here, listen, 
The reason Peter can be a little bit gracious in verses 17 and following is because the disciples themselves were ignorant of these things until Jesus explained it to them. Remember Luke 24? At least two major sections in the resurrection appearances are Jesus telling some of the disciples, look, let me show you how this prophecy is about me. How the suffering and resurrection of the Christ was predicted and was necessary in the plan of God. And they only understand really at the, at the greatest level when he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what Peter does not say is that this ignorance is innocence. You can go on your own again to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 to see that Paul teaches there that this ignorance is intentional. It is an unrighteousness suppressing the truth. We are accountable to God for ignoring what he has revealed. And then we are particularly without excuse when the gospel is proclaimed to us. (laughs) If you remain outside of Christ after hearing the gospel presented to you this morning and from friends and from others who love you, you are particularly without excuse. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is also the bad news if you continue to reject it. Because one day, the Lord will judge according to our willful ignorance and rejection. When we share the gospel today with those around us, we're a shining light. We are, or I'm sorry, we are shining a light on the darkness of our ignorance. Specifically, we likely need to show people from Scripture that they are sinners. The Jews, as we argued, the Jews would have understood this, but we need to help people see that they're sinners. Help them see, therefore, that that sin separates them from God and that the result of that sin, the necessary consequence of sin is to be judged. Death, destruction, eternal separation. Secondly, then, we also help people to see that it is, in fact, their own sin which contributes to the need for Christ's atoning death and resurrection. Why did Jesus need to die? There's a, a sad trend in even some evangelical circles to not preach the reality of the atonement. But if there is no sacrificial atonement, Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus isn't just a good example. Yes, he is that, of course, because he was the perfect son of God. But he had to die this way. This is God's perfect plan. He had to atone for our sin. Your sin put him there. But he rose again to defeat it, to defeat death and offer people forgiveness and spiritual life. And that is and was the only way. Now, as we continue, we see that like Peter, 
our witnessing must focus on who Jesus is and what God has done through him. We spoke already about Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning God's chosen and unique servant. Clearly, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But aren't you also blown away by the other two references to Jesus that Peter gives us in verses 14 and 15? He calls Jesus the Holy One and the Righteous One. There, this is connected undoubtedly to Jesus being the unique servant, the Messiah of God. But not only that, they're accurate descriptions of God the Son being uniquely set apart, holy, and uniquely unstained by sin, holy, pure, righteous in everything that he did. The demons that Jesus cast out acknowledge this about him. Mark 1, 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus is the prophesied righteous one and indeed the only one to live a, perfect, a perfectly righteous life on earth. And that righteousness was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. And accordingly, Jesus is able to forgive sin and account others as righteous. Listen to this prophecy from Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied through his suffering. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Also in a statement of hard-hitting irony, Peter tells his audience that they killed the prince of life. They killed the author, the originator, the founder of life. In this sense, it would refer to Jesus as one with the Godhead and the divine originator of life. It can also mean that he's the initiator and the pioneer which would connote Jesus as the first to go before us in rising from the dead, which is the very next thing Peter says, whom God raised from the dead. What Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished is the power for what you have seen take place in the healing of this man. What it accomplished is the payment for sin necessary so that you can, verse 19, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What his death and resurrection accomplished is ushering in the times of refreshing that gain you access to the presence of the Lord and have set in motion the age that now awaits Christ's return and final restoration, verses 20 and 21, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord if you will repent and have your sins blotted out, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, still yet future, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus is the essence of the gospel because he reveals God and God's plan for salvation. Who Jesus is in his divinity and fulfillment of messianic prophecy and what God accomplished through his perfect life and atoning death and vindicating resurrection and in his exaltation to reign. And now, as promised, I have to cover the last three texts more briefly, but 
we've already touched on so many of the verses that it makes this a little bit easier. So in our gospel proclamation, we are testifying to Christ as personal witnesses. Peter and John and the other apostles and still other disciples present with them were living witnesses that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what Peter says at the end of verse 15. We're witnesses of this. Remember, he's been saying that all along so far. We're witnesses of the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit in us is testifying that we are witnesses to the risen Christ. They are indwelt with the gift given them by the Lord, the Holy Spirit. So Peter can say, verse 16, that there is a connection between their own faith, his and John's, in the risen Jesus and the miraculous physical restoration of this man. There's a connection. We should notice that he didn't even, the the man, I, I don't believe this is the man's faith. I believe this is Peter's faith because the man didn't even ask Peter to heal him. So it would be a stretch to think that the faith which healed him was his own and not Peter's and John's. Now, we are witnesses to the living, we ourselves, like Peter, are witnesses to the living and reigning Christ by the powerful transformation that he has brought about in our lives, awakening us from spiritual death to life. Has that happened to you? (laughs) We are living witnesses of the work of the Holy Spirit in those who are spiritually alive. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ourselves as witnesses then, we aim to exalt Christ with our lives and proclaim him from the scriptures, declaring what God himself declares about his own character and purposes. We declare what is true about our culpability for sin and our inability to restore ourselves to God. And we explain God's plan and work through the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the only solution to our terminal spiritual disease. Because Jesus is the only way to be spiritually alive to God, we therefore do like Peter and we call people to repent of sin and put their faith only in Jesus the Christ. This is a faith which is placed in Jesus, who himself is Christ and Lord, as well as a faith which comes to us through Jesus. That's also in verse 16, meaning that Jesus himself imparts this kind of miracle-working faith to people's hearts. As we've emphasized already in recent study from Chapter 2, there's a side of this faith which the Bible calls repentance, a turning from sin to God. We must repent of our love of sin and repent of a reliance on ourselves and any man-made religion and instead throwing ourselves on the mercy of God who has displayed such kindness and love through Jesus only by his grace. That's why Peter emphasizes to his audience in verse 19 that they must repent and turn back. Turning back means that they must, have them, they must be turned the wrong way. Even the Jews, 
with the scriptures have turned their hearts away from God. And if even they who had the law of God were sinning in their efforts to please God by their own piety, how much more must all of human efforts at any kind of religiosity fall short? Our righteousness is no righteousness at all. We need Jesus to take our sin and give us his righteousness. And by his sacrifice and resurrection, our sins may be blotted out. In the process of calling people to repent and put their trust in Jesus himself, who is God, we also, therefore, are warning people of judgment and inviting them to the blessings of grace. When Peter preaches in Acts 2, the tone of there was certainly warning of judgment. Now, it's not absent here either, as, as he says about them, that they are those who do not listen to Jesus, and they shall be destroyed from among the people. It's good and necessary that we know the just and righteous character and action of God against sin which will result in eternal judgment if we do not repent. And yet in this sermon, without neglecting that judgment, the tone also emphasizes the blessings of salvation. Peter begins at the second half of verse 19 to say that when people repent and believe in Jesus, times of refreshing begin with the immediate blessing from the presence of the Lord. In Peter's thinking, the repentance and faith of the Jews in these verses, if the Jews will repent and have faith in Jesus, that will hasten God's program of sending Jesus back to culminate the kingdom which has already begun in us spiritually. In the end of verse 20. And then in verse 21, we see again, as we read, at the present time, heaven has received Jesus, but we are richly blessed to know that there he is reigning until his return. And when Jesus does return, that work will culminate in restoring all things that have been promised by God in his word, restoring all things that God has promised. God is faithful and true to his word. God does what he says he will do. And all promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, even if not every detail has yet been fulfilled, it is through Jesus Christ where they will all be fulfilled. How immeasurable are the blessings of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. So we go forward by grace through faith, proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ to everyone whom the Lord God places in our path. We know it's God who providentially prepares people to hear, like he did in this situation for Peter. We know that it's God who enables them to heed the gospel, to repent of sin and of self and turn to faith in Jesus. We know that that's God's work. But we also know that we have been commanded to proclaim him faithfully. And being faithful in it, means that our lives revolve around this endeavor, being set apart and sent. So if you would, take some time to reflect today and this week on how 
you can use Peter's sermons in the early chapters of Acts to help you grow in the way that you proclaim Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. You can be nothing else, God, other than faithful and true to your nature, to your character. You can do and be nothing else other than true to your word. And yet, because you have seen fit to change us and miraculously make us your own by the power of your Holy Spirit and giving us saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are overwhelmed and thankful. And God, we trust in you and the work of your Holy Spirit in us to help us to also be faithful to proclaim Christ. Thank you for your word, which time and time again reshapes us and shows us how we can be faithful to your will for us during these last days. We look forward to the return of our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.